All right, good morning. Definitely thankful for another opportunity to to study and and hear from God. Not hear from me. Probably don't want to hear from me, but hear from God. Today's uh, lesson will be from Luke, the third chapter, uh, verses 15 through 18. Continuing in our um, series that's been focused on the message uh, from John the Baptist. This actually is really our sixth lesson um, since we've began the study of John the Baptist's ministry. I hope that as we've had an opportunity to go through it, we've seen a lot of significance with it as it relates to preparing the people's hearts and minds for the Christ which is important for us today because we ought to prepare our hearts and minds for Christ's word, revelation of his word, as well as preparing for his return um, as believers, which is an aspect of the lesson that I'd like to delve into today as well. Just to um, bring in the context, I'm gonna read what we've already studied from Luke the third chapter. I'm gonna start at the first verse and read through um, last week's text, which was the 14th verse. Oh, yeah, 14th verse is where we stop. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. For it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain or hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Even now, the ax is laid by the root to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. 
Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. And this is where we concluded last week. I am fascinated at how detailed John the Baptist's message really was. Um, sometimes in reading through his message, we tend to just kind of read through it. Um, I haven't really allowed us to do that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm amazed at how he skillfully chose the words that he said. That's the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not using that to pat John the Baptist on the back, but that's how God works. God uses people for his purpose. And it's God's power that allows a person to be able to say exactly what's needed to be said. Everything that he mentions, he's creating imagery and this visual picture for the people to be able to see what's going on. He's using specific words that relate to the Old Testament that they would be familiar with. Sometimes when we read it, because we're in our, in our modern time, sometimes we don't appreciate some of the, the words and the, the verbiage and the phrases that's being used. And I've tried to draw into that. That's gonna be also beneficial for today's lesson because he uses specific words, phrases, and imagery. So where we left off, after he's preached this message of repentance, many people have come to him. He's not turning away anyone from being baptized. That's first. He's not saying, no, you can't be baptized. He's still baptizing the people. But he's saying, my baptism means nothing if you haven't changed on the inside. This is really just an outward demonstration of your belief and your faith on the inside. So as he's speaking to different people, he's making sure that's clear so that they have a clear understanding. They can't blame John for not having this change of mind because he's put it so plainly. He's called out those that are hypocritical in their act of baptism, but he's also graciously addressed those that really have a desire to change for whatever reason or another. And so last week we looked at some category of people who wanted to know how could they show on the outside that they've changed or been converted on the inside. And he told them, if, we, if you remember from last week, you can change today. It starts today. Wherever you are today, you can make those changes in your life. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait until next week. Tomorrow's not promised. We make those changes today. If God puts on your heart that you need to change in a certain way or direction with your lifestyle, you can make that change today. You don't have to wait. This is what he told the people. He didn't condemn the people. He didn't judge them because of their occupation. He didn't put them down. He said, this is how you make the adjustments today in your lifestyle, right where you are. That is really good news when you think about it because so often we as people are afraid to come to people with our concerns, problems, needs, issues, because we feel we might be scrutinized or judged or viewed a certain way. John the Baptist did not. He said, God wants you to change. Here are some things that you can do. Then we move in today's, into today's message, which is from the 15th verse of Luke chapter 3. And I read the entire um, passage in its entirety. Entire sounds long, even though it's just four verses. And it says, 
Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was a Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. I don't know how that message <laughs> may have come across to you, but we have to keep everything that he's saying within the contents that he's discussing. Verse 18 says, and with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. If we keep everything that John has said so far, it's best to read this, and with many other like exhortations, <laughs> he preached to the people. He didn't change his message. His message was about repentance and judgment. Repentance and judgment. Repentance and judgment. He had a short but effective ministry, but the goal was to prepare the people for Jesus Christ, and he understood that. Verse 15 has a couple of unique phrases in there that I wanna just highlight. It says, now as the people were in expectation, were in expectation. That's a word in the Greek that's in present tense that means this was a continual thing. They were waiting for the one that was to come. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the promised savior. They were waiting for the one that was to redeem Israel. They were familiar with Old Testament prophecy, whether they understood it all in its dispensations or time periods, but they were waiting for the one. John chapter, I wanna to go to it. John chapter 10 verse 24 is an illustration in the gospel with Jesus Christ that shows again that the people were continually waiting in anticipation for the one that was to come. John chapter 10, that famous uh, passage where Jesus speaks of himself as the shepherd. Old Testament spoke about the shepherd. God would shepherd his people, his flock. Jesus speaks saying he's the fulfillment of that. And then verse 22 of John chapter 10 picks up and it says, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <laughs> They've been waiting for the Christ. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They had been waiting for years and years of prophecy to be fulfilled. Jesus goes on to say, really I have told you plainly. I've showed works and demonstrations. In the context of this, that relates to the context of Luke chapter 3, he tells the people, you're hard-hearted. You're rejecting what's been revealed to you. You refuse to repent and change. It's the same thing John is telling the people in Luke chapter 3. 
You need to repent. You need to change your way of thinking. They were in expectation, anticipation. They were waiting. As believers, we're called to do the same thing today. Not refuse to repent, but to prepare ourselves for Jesus Christ. Timothy, the Titus, the second chapter, verse 11 through 13, is a good verse for us to highlight because it speaks to the very point that I'm making about anticipation and preparation for the coming Messiah. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That verse is in the same context of the verse that I'm presenting in Luke chapter 3 as Luke tells the people how to prepare for the coming Messiah. He says, live a lifestyle that shows that you've been changed on the inside. In the writing to Titus, he says, live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age. He's saying the exact same thing, that our lifestyle, our lifestyle should reflect that we've changed and we're preparing to receive Jesus Christ. We ought to look for practical ways that we could live out this lifestyle, just as John the Baptist spoke of last week. It also says in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, it says that they reasoned in their hearts. Yours might say wondered. But it says they reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. Now remember, John performed no miracles but his ministry was powerful because of God's work. It was God that had the power that moved through John the Baptist in the wilderness as people were coming in flocks. So naturally, as everyone is coming to John the Baptist, even those in Jerusalem, people begin to wonder. They hadn't seen anything like this, and they begin to wonder, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one. Everyone's following him. Maybe he is the one. What I like about this writing in Luke is God, the Holy Spirit, reveals to Luke exactly what he needs to write, and he reveals to us what was in the minds of the people. Because it didn't say that they said anything right here, but Luke writes that the people were wondering if he was the Christ or not. That is amazing to me because that shows that God knows the heart of men, one, and he sends his messenger to deliver the message for the people because he knows what's in the heart of people, of his people. He created us. He knows everything about us. Like the psalmist says, where can I go to hide from God? We can't hide from God. I've tried to hide from God. 
Anybody tried to hide from God before? <laughs> you might not want to necessarily say it. I've tried to hide from God. Silly of me to think that I could hide from God. Maybe God wanted you to do something you didn't really want to do, right? So you tried to run from God. You tried to sew some fig leaves on or whatever you tried to do to cover up so that you wouldn't be seen by God. Maybe you tried to, to take a pause on your devotion or your, your study with God so God wouldn't call on you. You thought that he couldn't reach you. We can't, Romans says, we can't be separated from the love of God. It's that kind of love that's right there with you, like that parent, right? That's just right there with you. I love you, I'm not gonna let you go. That's how God is with his children. But they were wondering this in their hearts. They began to question some things. Start to look at John's ministry. Verse 16, John is so, John the Baptist is so humble that it's amazing. You know that he's so humble because even Jesus commends the humility of John the Baptist. Verse 16 says, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. God, the Holy Spirit, revealed to John the Baptist what was going on in the hearts of men. So John says, makes a statement, he says, I am not the one with the power. There's nothing that I'm doing out here that's special. I have a role to fulfill. My role is to prepare you. I am dunking you in water. If anything, I'm skilled at getting people wet, right? Making people wet with water. That's it. I am not the one with the power. There's no power in me, in my flesh. Don't draw your attention really to me. I'm just baptizing you with water. Just an outward display of what you've expressed on the inside. Really, the, the, what's special is what happened on the inside, which kind of foreshadows this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's really the special part. I'm just carrying out my mission on the outward part. He says, but one, but one mightier than I is coming. That phrase, mightier than I, for those, for us, we read that and we say, okay, I get it. Someone, God is all powerful. I, I get it. But when they heard it, they heard certain words in original language that they connected with certain Old Testament passages. See, they understood the context better than us. When he said, one mightier than I, they probably thought of a few passages in the Old Testament where this word mightier in a Hebrew referenced God. Specifically, let me give you a couple of passages, Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah 33. 32 verse 18, 33 verse 3 of Jeremiah speak about God, the great and mighty one. 
speak about God, the great and mighty one. When they heard John the Baptist say this, they heard something that maybe we didn't hear. They heard John the Baptist really say that God is coming. Because they, they connected that word mightier in the same context with the Old Testament passage that referred to God. Not just a strength like Samson or some of the prophets of old. They connected that word that was only associated in the Old Testament with God. And they understood that John the Baptist really was saying, God, the one that's mightier than I, is coming. That's really been his entire message. He's not speaking of a great prophet that's coming. He's speaking of God made flesh and dwelt among men. He's speaking of the Savior who would take on flesh and be that sacrifice, be that perfect lamb. So when he said that, they understood really what he was saying. We'll see later on in John chapter 1, they begin to question some things as to who particularly he was, and he'll address it again. But he says, but one, and mine is capitalized, yours probably is too in your text, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. That statement blew the Jews away. Their culture believed that as far as servant and master relationship was concerned, you did everything for your master except untie the shoe straps. You did everything for your master except untie their sandals. That was humiliating. That was embarrassing. You didn't do that. They may untie them. You may go through the washing of the feet ceremony part, but you didn't untie the sandal strap. John says, I'm not worthy of performing the lowest and humiliating task to the one that's coming. I'm not even worthy of that. Sometimes in our lives, we get to a point in a level where we feel like we don't necessarily have to go through humiliation for God. We've arrived at a certain point in our lives. We're better than that. John the Baptist, from the priestly tribe on both sides, endued with the Holy Spirit, direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, revealed God's word by God directly, heard God's audible voice from heaven, had a mission since he was in the womb, said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandal straps. How low will you go in relation to Jesus Christ? That's really the question. John says, I go as low as, as he wants me to go. I'm not worthy of any of this. That statement blew the Jews away when they heard it. He gives another, this is another picture, this is imagery. He gives another illustration and he, and he ties it with hum humility. He says, however, 
he, the one that's mightier than I, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This phrase does not say that he's speaking of a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire as one act. That was a misconception that people had relating to this verse. Because if you look in the New Testament and you look at those that are saved, there's not a fire experience. Jesus didn't speak of a fire experience that happens when someone is baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we know there are two separate acts that he's speaking of, especially if we keep it in context with what John the Baptist is talking about. He's talking about repentance unto salvation and a remission of sins, and he's talking about judgment. Those are the two. And so he gives this illustration here. There was another misconception, even with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, that they were connected. And many used the context of the day of Pentecost with this, the Holy Spirit coming down in the, the fire. But if you read that context, it says, like as fire, not fire literally, but like fire, um, characteristics there, not literal fire. He's speaking of two separate acts. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't a new concept as well. It wasn't a new concept either. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 36, it speaks of the Holy Spirit coming. I do want to read that passage for you. Let me find that one. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. He says, I'll go back to 36 of Ezekiel 36. Verse 26 says, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgment and do them. Those that were in the audience knew of this coming time of repentance that revealed or was connected with receiving the Holy Spirit. So they understood that everything that John is saying, there's an Old Testament reference to it. He's connecting it to, for the people. John wasn't just out there just speaking. That's what made the crowd so interested in what John had to say because everything he said just dripped with Old Testament prophecy. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the purpose of his coming. It's illustrated in verse 17 as he gives a agricultural type picture that they all would understand. He says his winnowing fan, or yours might say his winnowing fork, is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. They understood the illustration. They knew exactly what he was saying. We don't necessarily know all of it because we live in a different society, but they knew. They knew the process. 
They knew you had the threshing floor with all of the grain. They knew that this winnowing fan was this shovel-like item that you lifted up the grain or the wheat and threw it in the air and the chaff would just float to the edge and what you had that was valuable would be right in the middle, you would gather it. This really spoke of separation. It spoke of separation. That was Christ's ministry. It spoke of separation. He come to collect his people, preach a message, but those that reject, you took the chaff, and there was this unquenchable fire. The phrase unquenchable fire, when you put unquenchable and fire together, is really only used in another passage, and it speaks specifically to hell, a lake of fire. You also can find that in Revelations 20 and 15. This wasn't, a, this wasn't figuratively speaking. He was speaking of a literal fire. But they understood the analogy. He was speaking of separation. It just was more imagery. Jeremiah, the 15th chapter, um, helps to bring this passage into context. So as we're moving toward the latter part of this message, I do want to read a portion from Jeremiah 15. This was a passage that those that were familiar with Old Testament scripture, like those in the crowd and especially the Jews, they knew the context of the passage. They knew what he meant when he referred to this winnowing fork. They knew in the context of what he was saying and they understood John chapter or Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15 is the warning to the people that God is about to judge them for refusal to repent for so long and God had been holding back his anger. And they are about to be taken over and taken captive by the Babylonians. He was speaking specifically to Judah, specifically to Jerusalem, specifically to the same people that, that, that John the Baptist is speaking of. That's why it was so significant. I'm gonna read a portion of Jeremiah 15 because God, through Jeremiah, makes a statement to the people. Jeremiah, he loved the people. You know that from many contexts. He loved the people. And he would pray and pray and pray to God that God would spare the people. He would always pray or intercede on behalf of the people to God. And God makes a statement in Jeremiah 15 verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Jesus, God tells Jeremiah that it doesn't matter if Moses himself or Samuel, who were known to intercede for the people, spoke to me right now, I would not change my mind. I have withheld my wrath and anger for so long because I'm long-suffering, giving the people an opportunity to change and repent. They refused. Judgment is happening. He goes on and speaks of that, but in verse 7 of Jeremiah, the 15th chapter says, And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. 
I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. Uses the same illustration of this winnowing that John the Baptist speak of. John specifically chose his words so that they would understand that we don't want to repeat the same pattern that our forefathers did when God judged them because they refused to change. Change, the Messiah is coming. Don't be like those who received judgment in times of old. So when we go back to the Luke passage, in closing it says, he will thoroughly clean, there will be none left. Those will be gathered to him, that's the wheat, that which is beneficial or of use. And then it says, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's those that refuse to repent or change their way of thinking. John the Baptist's message was clear. It was clear exactly what the people needed to do. In closing, I want to do two things. Um, one, encourage you to continue to read from Kings. I'm going to ask that you read 2 Kings chapter 1 through 2. That really concludes the, the ministry of Elijah. Some will be sent later on to John the Baptist and they'll ask him, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? What gives you the authority to be able to do these things? They'll begin to question him because they understood the life of Elijah. They understood his ministry. They understood that Malachi 4.5 said that Elijah was to come before the Messiah. So they understood some, some things. And they began to question what they were seeing. But I want to conclude with a very familiar passage to you that will illustrate repentance versus non-repentance, righteousness versus non-righteousness. And it's from Psalms, the first chapter, as I close. It's a short chapter, short and sweet. Some of you probably know it by heart. This is what John the Baptist was speaking of. It says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth, shall prosper. That's the righteous man. Not righteous in his flesh, but the man that aligns with God's law and God's word. The man that repents and changes his way of thinking and draws closer to God. The man that refuses to lean on his own understanding, but instead leans on God's understanding to make decisions in his life. That man is righteous. That man is wise. Those that desire, like in John the Baptist's uh, message, to change their lifestyle and change their ways. However, verse 4 of Psalms chapter 1 says, The ungodly are not so. The unrighteous are not so. The unrepentant or non-repentant are not so. But they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. We have that chaff. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. 
for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. If you could bow with me for a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come just thanking you for just another opportunity to reflect on your word, to examine our lives, our hearts, our motivations, to have another opportunity to line up with your righteousness and your standard, which is Jesus Christ. Thank you for your precious gift of your son, Jesus Christ. If there's someone under the sound of my voice that has not accepted your free gift of Jesus Christ, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move them to want to know what must be done to be saved. We thank you for this opportunity of worship, of fellowship, and time of study. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the, um, the music is playing, um, we have some of those that are standing to the side here for prayer. Um, so if there's someone that just needs prayer and would like some of those on our prayer team to, to be able to intercede and just come with you um, and rally around you regarding prayer or something in your life, um, we have some that will be standing to the side here that can assist you with that during our song service here. <laughs> 